All right, we gotta get started here, and it's exciting to be back with the deep dive. Everybody, welcome back to the deep dive. We are studying Torah this season on the channel. My name is Tim, and I'm so glad that you are here with us tonight as we discuss one of the most basic human realities that matters to every single person, no matter who you are. And we find out how this ancient text of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy undergirds our entire justice system, human life, it's sacred, it's sacrosanct. People are made in the image of God. But what happens when that image is harmed or robbed or mistreated? God has a lot to say about it. Welcome to the Deep Dive Season 7, Part 13 of Torah. The Deep Dive Season 7 presents... Yeah, here we are, season seven, part 13. We are studying Torah. Those are the first five books of your Bible. And this is youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. I am going to get myself set up here with my presentation and what today is talking about, what we're, what we're gonna discuss, big issue, the sanctity of human life. It is a hot button issue uh, in our culture around one topic and that is abortion, unfortunately, uh, it gets relegated only to the conversation regarding abortion, but God's word has so much more to say on the sanctity of human life than just on the matter of abortion. Now, I am pro-life. The scriptures are very clear. Life begins at conception. It's not a question of how God sees it in his word and how he has taught his people to to understand when life begins and the value of a human life in their mother's womb. But Beyond the womb, we have tons of debates around human life, its value, and what we should do when human life is taken. Which brings me to Torah. Torah has a ton to say about murder, about crimes committed against humanity. And it's an amazing thing, because as you study Torah, you will see the underlayment of our present criminal justice system. How do we determine the difference between first-degree homicide and second-degree homicide or homicide and manslaughter? And what do we do with an unborn child who suffers harm because of the anger and hostility of a person outside of the womb? These questions were answered for us in the writings of Moses. And that brings me to the first bit of content I want to bring to you tonight on this subject. There's a reason why Moses sits atop the gable on the backside of the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. Yep, there he is right there in the middle. You can see that he's holding the two tablets of God's law, and he is flanked by Confucius. Let's go to the next one. Confucius there on his 
left, or his right, our left, and then Solon, who was a sixth century Athenian lawgiver uh, in, in ancient, uh, I would say, Persia and media. And he's on Moses' left there or our right, but right in the middle, at the center of the gable, is your friend, my friend, our forerunner in the faith, Moses. Moses is preeminent among the ancient lawgivers on the top of the very building where you could argue people in this country can make their final case for justice in this land. This is by design. And the reason is simple, because all that we enjoy, the privileges and the rights and the freedoms and the opportunity for justice in our context is rooted not in man's rational thoughts, not in ancient Babylon or Mesopotamia. It's rooted in the Word of God in the first five books of the Bible. So with that in mind, let's dig in and talk about the sanctity of human life from God's perspective. First verse I want to share with you is in the very first book of Torah, Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God, and this is an interesting little commentary right there in the law with the word for, for God made man in his own image. We refer to this as the Imago Dei, the image of God. It is why we modern people in America and in the West consider that every human life matters. Why do we believe it? Because God made humans in his image. Dogs don't represent God. Um, uh, Birds and cows don't represent God. They are creatures that mankind was given to rule over, subdue, to guard, to protect, to manage properly, ultimately though, for the flourishing of humankind. So when we go to the Bible, it is unquestionable that human life is sacred. Human life is special. It is higher life than animal life, higher life than fish life. Save the planet. Absolutely. Let's try. Let's manage creation as best as we can. But let's start with the rulers of creation, mankind. As it says in Psalm 8, that God has crowned man with glory and honor. He has made him ruler over his creation. Now that rule, obviously, theologically we believe, that rule was abdicated in Adam, handed over to Satan in the garden when he listened to his wife who was deceived by the serpent. And instead of ruling, he subjugated our human race to the rule of Satan. He is the God of this world. We talked about that last night on the deep end. Jesus Christ comes as second Adam. He thoroughly obeys the Father. He lives an innocent, pure, perfect life, and then he lays down that innocent, pure, perfect life to the hands of sinners and becomes a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for our sins and restores authority to mankind by having the keys of hell and death and receiving unto himself the kingdoms of this world. Now, after Christ, we have a job to do to undo the mess that human sin, centuries and millennia of human sin have made with regards to murder, bloodshed, enslavement, mistreatment, physical harm. And we have to take these matters seriously and we have to find a baseline for how are we going to handle justice. When we talk about justice in our world, justice is a huge talking point. It's a a big, you know, flashpoint in our 
cultural conversation right now. People want social justice. Many times that social justice terminology is actually a very um, shadowy version of Marxism. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about justice, we're talking about fairness under the law. Not just saying that because of the color of your skin, you deserve this, or because of historical wrongs against these kinds of people, your physical appearance entitles you to that. No, that's the social justice of this world that we do not, we do not adhere to as Christians. We adhere to justice as God has determined that every man, black, white, male, female, and, and brown, and yellow, and whatever other color, are all made in the image of God and are all worthy of dignity, honor, and respect and must be regarded with those realities when they are harmed. So Torah has laws about manslaughter, murder, the seriousness of taking a, a, a life, whether intentional or unintentional. Murder is punishable by death. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood uh, by uh, that man, by man shall his blood be shed. By man, let, let me just look at that again with you guys real clearly so you can see it. By man, that means we will take this into our own hands and we will put to death the murderer. There was a commentary in the ancient texts. Uh, it's called the Mishnah. It was written about um, 300 BC. And uh, in one of the texts, it says, therefore, man was created alone to teach you that whoever destroys a single soul, it is, this, it is as if he has destroyed an entire world. Why? Why is that so serious? Because the offspring of that person has been cut off. Because of the potential of contributing to human flourishing has been cut off from that individual. You know, most people today struggle with a sense of um, value self-worth. It's amazing to me because it just belies the fact that they are not familiar with how God sees them. God sees them as of immense human value, of immense, of immense godly value, <laughs> yeah, human value, godly value. He values you and his laws about protecting the innocent and avenging the murderer are speaking to that value inherent in all of us who are made in the image of God. Now, when it comes to capital punishment, here is the big controversy of our day. There is a vast and wide and very aggressive movement to abolish capital punishment. It's abolishing in almost uh, every blue state, every liberal state. They want to abolish the death penalty. It's amazing to me how they have no problem putting to death the unborn who are innocent, but have a huge issue with putting to death the murderer. And I'm talking about the clearly convicted, plenty of evidence, written, signed, confession murderers. I want to start today with a story, a true story, from July 23rd, 2007. In Chester, Connecticut, this family, Stephen Hayes, Dr. St I'm sorry, Dr. Uh, William Pettit, his wife Jennifer, and his daughters Haley and Michaela, they were brutally attacked in their home July 23rd, 2007. Two men, Stephen Hayes and Joshua Kamasarjewski, broke into Dr. William Pettit's house, beat him almost to death with a baseball bat, raped his wife and his daughter, his 11-year-old daughter, strangled them to death, tied the daughters on the beds, doused them with gas, set them on fire. The men confessed to every single charge. It was undeniable proof. The police were at the door when this was happening, they knew they caught them red-handed doing it, and they were subsequently tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. Well, that was in 2007, 2008, 2009. 
Years go by, the movement to annul the death penalty in our country is making headway, huge gains in deep blue states, Connecticut being one of them. And in 2015, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional and retroactively commuted all death sentences to life imprisonment, including the two heinous murderers, Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komisarjewski. These two men who murdered that beautiful wife and two daughters, are alive and given three meals a day at the expense of taxpayers, sitting in a Connecticut prison system. And they beg us to re-examine the madness surrounding the move to abolish the death penalty. And here, just so you guys know, here's the absolute kicker. One of those convicted murderers in 2019 came out as transgender, now goes by the name of Linda Hayes. And the articles regarding this heinous, disgusting, despicable man who deserves death show him the dignity to refer to him as her. But this is the insanity of our age. This is the degradation of human society. This is the degradation of our culture. Because when we shed blood and let it go unatoned for in our country, in any country, God's wrath remains on, on that culture. And that is what we are seeing today. That's the hard truth. You may not like it. You may not be comfortable with it. It's the hard truth. And it calls us Christians to wake up, to realign, not with progressive movements or social stances, but with God's word regarding murder and justice. When you consider the fact that those two men sit in prison and are basically cared for by the state until their natural death, Think about what denying the death penalty does. I want to give you a couple of points before we get into the Bible's teaching on this. Uh, no death penalty, basically, number one, de declares that punishing the murderer with death is the same as what the murderer did, which is asinine. That is so ridiculous, I cannot even begin. It is unconscionable to me that you can consider putting to death those two men who grievously assaulted and then murdered innocent women and beat almost to death their father and did this while he was down in the basement tied up to a pole. And then you think putting them to death is the same as, that, as what they did to those precious women? Sick, only deprived society believes such things are valid and equal and true. Number two, when you deny the death, death penalty, you belittle human life. You're protecting the one who deliberately took human life. You are basically saying that human life taken in that anger, rage, and hostility is, is, is yeah, it's just a life. And the life of the murderer is almost more important than the life that the murderer took. Number three, it provides opportunity for the murderer to keep killing or causing harm. It provides opportunity in a couple ways. Number one, think about the person uh, being in, in prison, maybe instigating a riot, maybe killing other people in that prison, maybe escaping from prison and killing others, maybe being released by, because of some governor or president who commutes his sentence. And, and is released. And how often do we see that? And we talked about on the deep end last night about repeat recidivism in the prison uh, system of our country right now. And over and over again, we have uh, untold problems formed when we provide murderers the opportunity to keep killing and causing harm. And number four, it affirms Satan. It affirms Satan, who Jesus said was a murderer from the beginning. He is a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. See, a society that seeks to protect those who deny or destroy life with more life is actually on the side of Satan. I think that Satan sings a happy tune when he sees us protecting the murderers. Because what Satan ultimately hates, 
What Satan ultimately wants to kill, steal, and destroy is humanity. He doesn't care about the birds. He doesn't care about the cattle. He doesn't care about the beasts. He doesn't care about the fish. He cares about annihilating the representatives of God's image on this earth. You, me, we are valued above all creation in the eyes of our Father, and thereby we are hated all the more by Satan, our adversary, our accuser, and the murderer from the beginning. Okay, let's shift gears, because here's the truth and the facts about crime and punishment. Let me put this on the screen just so I can say it and you can see it. Crime and punishment are often complicated situations that require nuanced examination of facts, withholding of instant retribution, and fair-minded people involved in the process of determining justice. Now, that's a mouthful, but let me explain. We have to really take our time in regards to crime and punishment. There is a case to be made for how belligerent are we about the death penalty. That I can agree with. Because in many cases, some are later exonerated through DNA evidence, and many innocents have been put to death on falsified evidence or evidence that was um, falsified with intent by uh, detectives or, or, or police officers. The heart of men is desperately wicked. And yes, in every instance of justice, there is plenty of injustice, and we cannot blanket statement that any accusation against anyone leads to their murder or leads to the death of that person because it's complicated. We don't always have all the facts. And this is how, this is what belies the importance of the Torah and its influence upon our criminal justice system. Because these cases are complicated, because they're nuanced, because we need to take our time, our nation has the fifth, the sixth, the eighth, and the 14th amendments of the Constitution. And all of those amendments have their basis in the Torah. Uh, the Fifth Amendment deals with due process. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or, of, or naval forces or in the militia. And on and on it goes, and it says, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. In other words, you have a right to due process if you are, con if you are accused of a crime. The Sixth Amendment talks about your right to a speedy and public trial. In all criminal pr prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which the district shall, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, and on and on it goes about the right to a speedy and public trial. By the way, in that public trial, the Sixth Amendment guarantees an impartial jury uh, in for information of the charges. They can't just hold you. They have to tell you what you are under arrest for. Uh, you are able to confront your witnesses and uh, cross-examine them. And then you also have the right to an attorney. That would be the Miranda rights that the police read to those who are accused of a crime. And then number eight, the, the Eighth Amendment is the amendment that deals with a cruel and un unusual punishment. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and un 
unusual punishments inflicted. So you cannot be beaten in jail um, by law. You cannot uh, be exposed to the elements while you await sentencing. These are restricted. These laws are in place. These amendments, don't you realize how protected you are if you are accused of a crime and you say, I don't like that. Well, when you're accused, you'll like it, trust me, because sometimes people get accused and they're innocent. And so we have all of these protections, layer upon layer of protections for the accused so that we make sure that these very complicated and nuanced conditions surrounding, nuanced realities surrounding crime and punishment are not just um, given over to the human condition and all chaos breaks loose, if you know what I mean. The 14th Amendment, another extension, if you will, of the 5th Amendment, wherein it extends due process to all the states under the Union. So these amendments and these laws on the books in the United States, amazingly, this is the, this is the thought that I have for you. Amazingly, the 3,500-year-old text of Torah was and remains the underlying philosophy of our modern procedures intended to arrive at justice. That is where we're going today. This might sound a little bit boring, I don't know. I hope you find it um, life-giving and valuable information because you need to understand that yes, the Bible is the foundation for Western civilization. It is the foundation for the very rights and freedoms that you enjoy as an American citizen, and it stands the test of time when it comes to handling very complicated and honestly very distressing instances of crimes against humanity. So let's take a look and let's see how these ancient laws from Moses are right in step with many of our modern laws concerning justice and punishment. Exodus chapter 21, 12 through 14, quote, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. There it is again, reiterating Genesis 9 verse 6, verse 13. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, there is an interesting backstory behind that law that take him from my altar. In the ancient world, particularly in Phoenicia, Persia, uh, ancient Babylon, it was thought that you could seek refuge in the temple at the altar of whatever god that country or that empire worshipped if you were accused of a crime. Uh, especially if you were guilty of the crime. You could go, and if you made it to the altar, you could survive by just hanging on, claim, you know, protection from the gods. But here in Torah, groundbreaking uh, words are given to Moses. You will not find sanctuary in the altar if you have been rightfully convicted of killing another human being. God will not stand it. He will not tolerate it. And then notice, obviously, right here in Exodus chapter 21, there are different rules uh, for both manslaughter. He did not lie in wait for him. God let him fall into his hand. Interesting statement there, too, by the way. God let him fall into his hand. Again, the underlying thought there is it was allowable by God. It is a tragedy. Nothing falls under uh, outside of God's sovereign ultimate control. Not that God caused it but that God obviously saw it and allowed it to happen for whatever purposes that we may or may not understand this side of heaven. But there is a distinction to be made between outright intentional homicide and manslaughter. 
By the way, in the ancient world, blood feuds dominated the landscape. If your relative was killed, you had the right, in fact, you had the obligation to kill not just the person who killed your family member, but the entire family of the one who killed your family member. These ideals were entrenched in ancient society in the ancient Near East. And guess what, friends? Also, in the uh, Native American population of this country and in the Central American regions. Okay, we have plenty of anthropological evidence that blood feuds existed between the tribes that lived amongst these lands and Central and South American lands as they did in the ancient cultures in the ancient Near East. There, there is no difference between ancient Near Eastern people and their heart and evil and bent toward retribution and, and um, New World ancients, if you will. The Torah does something groundbreaking here. It provides a means of protecting the accidental killer from those Avengers. In other words, the blood, the blood feud has to stop. That's what God is saying. Because if we continue these blood feuds, there will be no one left. That's why ancient cultures had a life expectancy of 25 to 45 in some cases. So Torah differentiates from outright murder to uh, accidental death or, or manslaughter. And we will get to cities of refuge later because that is in the text there in Exodus 21. But for right now, let's continue on in our study of the underlayment of our modern justice system. Laws concerning partiality exist on the books in Torah. Leviticus 19.15, you, no, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, or other text translations say rich, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now, this one is very important, and it is... <laughs> largely missed today in our social justice movement. Notice what the text says, Leviticus 19.15. You shall not be partial to the poor, and you shall not also defer to the great or the rich. In other words, you're going to treat them on level ground. That's why many times the image of justice is a woman who is blind holding scales that are balanced because she is not looking at who's the perpetrator and who's the victim and what's their social standing. This is a missing attribute amongst the young in particular in our generation. We tend to think, particularly young people tend to think, poor equals innocent, rich equals guilty. And if you're poor, it's because the rich, you know, gamed the system to keep you poor and make themselves rich. And so it must be a revolution of the poor against the rich. And this is just ludicrous. This is old-fashioned Marxism. This is what you call the oppressed and oppressor binary, where everyone is neatly fit into two categories, not based on anything other than their checking account balance or their savings account balance or their lifestyle. And this is an abomination in the eyes of God. We do not favor the poor simply because they are poor. It does not mean you're innocent. And we do not favor the rich simply because they're rich. It does not mean that they are innocent. We will show impartial justice. Where does it come from? It comes from Torah. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 11, he says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. John 12, verse 8, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. The poor are going to exist no matter what we do. And the fact remains is that we cannot just blindly choose the poor over the rich simply because they're poor. That comes from the Torah. Um, another law concerning partiality. This is an important one for anyone who will ever be accused. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with an offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall, be, shall, shall a charge be established. 
Today, witnesses are called on to testify to findings and events necessary to either acquit or convict the guilty. Where did that come from? It comes from Torah. But again, partiality is at stake here. Not one witness, two, but most likely three witnesses are required to establish the charge. Now, why do you think that? Because it's far easier to get per, get partial from one or two people. But three, you start to expand that social construct, and it's a lot harder for three people to come against one person on the matter of a false charge. This is how God has determined to limit the human heart from enacting vengeance and wrathful injustice in the presence or in response to a crime against someone else. More laws concerning due process in the Torah. Numbers 35, verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Due process. We're going to take our time. We're going to find and search out the evidence. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Again and again and again, Torah is calling out the need for a painstaking, time-taking process by which the accused is thoroughly vetted. The, the, the accused and the facts are thoroughly examined. All of these things, which seem boring, right, to the average person, because nobody's out there, not many people are out there killing people. It will be incredibly important to you if and or when you might be facing charges for a crime that you did not commit. And of course, my prayer is that you never have to face charges for a crime that you never uh, commit. Another interesting piece of arch architectural note about the Supreme Court, this picture is a picture of the lampposts that are beside the building and they are supported by bronze tortoises. Uh, this is from the fable, the tortoise and the hare, where the tortoise takes his time and actually wins the competition against the hare who got lazy after he took a big lead. But the idea here is that the light of justice is carried along with a slow pace, deliberate pace, and a ton of contemplation. I, I just find it kind of interesting here because you think about the process of gathering evidence and questioning witnesses and subpoenaing, subpoenaing, subpoenaing witnesses and trying a case. It takes a long time. I remember when uh, O.J. Simpson was um, caught or arrested for the murder of his wife and Ron Goldman. And that was my senior year of high school. Man, am I getting old. Uh, he was then acquitted in my sophomore year of college. I remember this. And um, it just took a long time to get to that point. Well, why? Because we want to take our time about examining evidence and making the right judgment. Why? Because, again, human beings are made in the image of God. And when we shed innocent blood, we will get to this later, the land is defiled, God says. Now, one of the ways that we protect people who are accused is by putting them in jail or protective custody so that the, you know, vengeance can't be quickly imposed by the uh, family of the person who was murdered. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have jails. They didn't have cells. They didn't have protective witness custody programs. No, or protective, you know, custody programs. What they did have and what God prescribed was cities of refuge. Now, this might be new content to you if you're new to the Bible, but the Bible talks about these cities of refuge a lot. It talks about them in Exodus. We already talked about it in Exodus chapter 21. It talks about them in Numbers. It talks about them in Deuteronomy. And it talks about them in Joshua. They are referred to again and again. If you've ever read through the Bible, cover to cover, you will see cities of refuge, cities of refuge. And you say, what is all this about? Well, these are the, the places where God directed that if somebody is accused 
of a crime or has actually slayed a man without intent, this is where he can go. Let's take a look at the scriptures. We speak about this, uh, Numbers 35, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. There you go. Due process and trial and all that. Verse 13. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills a person without intent may flee there. Now notice that the person accused of uh, a killing, credibly accused, by the way, this would be a manslayer, manslaughter case, if you will. These people are equated to who? Sojourners and strangers. This would be protective custody for outsiders designated by the nation so that people have rights protected them as they live among the Jews. Now, this is groundbreaking as well in the ancient world because ancient empires were not friendly to strangers. They were not friendly to sojourners, and they definitely were not friendly to those who killed other people. They would just enact justice and retributive justice that went beyond the original crime. So God, again, is restraining the, the propensity of humankind to escalate violence again and again and again. These laws are in place to restrain the human heart from escalating murder upon murder upon murder upon murder. And so what you find is a place of safety, place of refuge. By contrast, societies, again, such as Phoenicia, Syria, Greece, Rome, uh, the temple of that nation provided protection to these figures. Uh, unconscionable. When Joab... Uh, is credibly accused, and we all know this from the biblical text in first, uh, Second Samuel, he uh, kills Abner, the commander of Saul, who had then sided with David by that time. He also kills Asahel, who is, um, uh, or sorry, he avenges Asahel, his brother's blood, by killing Abner, and, and on and on. He kills many people. And one of the things that David tells Solomon before he dies is, you got to avenge his blood, because that blood is on me. And when you take the throne, you go to avenge and put Joab to death. Well, Joab gets the news in 1 Kings chapter 2, and he goes to the temple. It's an interesting thing about Joab, you see his heart here. He has not read the Torah. He is not familiar with the scriptures. And so he goes to the um, altar and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar and they say, oh, he's holding onto the horns of the altar. And so Solomon says, kill him, kill him there. And they do, and they take his life because you will not find refuge in the temple of God when you have taken a human life. That is what God says. So the city of refuge, again, a due process st uh, stipula a stipulation in the law. Verse 22 of Numbers 35, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation, and notice this phrase, the congregation shall judge due process, all of this, just laden with restraint. They shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. Again and again, you see these codes that underlie our justice system. And by the way, and I have done my research, there is no other ancient code that offers such protection for the accused. Not in the Code of Hammurabi, not in the ancient Greek writings, although if they were, they were probably largely influenced by the Torah. There are no other ancient law codes that come close to these provisions for people who are accused credibly of unintentional homicide. Again, 
the usual approach was a blood feud or some kind of monetary compensation. And on and on the uh, animosity toward fellow man went. Continuing on in Numbers 35, verse 25, and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it. And this is an important little context here. Until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Now that is interesting, and you say, what, what, what's the deal with the death of the high priest? Well, a couple things. Number one, the high priest was probably the most well-fed person in Israel at the time because they ate the food that was presented at the altar, a lot of meat, a lot of veg, a lot of all the you know nutrients. And you know in the ancient world, to eat regularly uh, good meals was very rare. But the temple was the place where people brought their sacrifices and offerings, and those sacrifices were burnt, and then they were fed to the priest, and the priest ate it with the worshiper. And so the priest was probably, the high priest and the priestly systems were probably the most well-fed people in ancient Israel. And so they probably lived the longest. This was to give the maximum amount of time for someone who was accused credibly of killing someone, the chance to live and survive because they didn't carry it out with you know, willful intent. This was to protect somebody. Uh, going on in the text, it says that he will stay, stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Now, uh, let, me, let me actually wait before we go on. Let me talk about one more way that this actually teaches us as uh, modern Christians in our new covenant context, the death of the high priest is pointing to the death of the ultimate high priest. Jesus Christ, he is the one who shed his blood so that all the murderers can be forgiven, so that all those who have made mistakes and sinned in ways that they meant or did not mean can be cleared and brought back home uh, guiltless before the throne of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ. So it's a beautiful picture of the gospel here, even in Numbers chapter 35. And then it says in verse 26, but if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, for he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And then he can return after the death of the high priest. And these things shall be a statute for you and a rule for you throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. God is intent about this. You will protect people. You will not allow unrestrained violence in the land because it leads to blood, innocent blood shed in the land. And innocent blood shed in the land, we will see this in the later prophets, we will see this in Isaiah particularly, and in the Psalms. Innocent blood shed in the land defiles the nation and brings a curse brings a curse, which makes us think about all the innocent blood that our nation has shed in the wombs of the mothers and all the guilty blood our nation has protected in, de in death row prison cells. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable where we are and we wonder, we wonder why our nation is literally being torn apart from the seams and it feels like all hell is breaking loose. It could very well be, in fact, it is. It is a curse upon our nation as God has has taken in and absorbed the ways in which we have basically defiled the image of God in the human person. Now, let me get back before I go any more tangents here to the city of refuge, because I do want to step outside of the Torah, if you will indulge me for a moment, and go to a passage in Joshua that refers to them. Joshua 20, verse 7, it says this, So they set apart, and these are the cities of refuge, Kadesh and Galilee, uh, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah, and beyond the Jordan, east of the Jordan, east of Jericho, sorry, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the top tribe of Manasseh. 
Now, the amazing thing about these cities of refuge is that they serve as an illustration of God's mercy. They serve as an illustration of God protecting or providing a place for those who deserve punishment, but yet live and escape death. And you find the symbols of God's mercy in their names. Let me do this with you together, one name at a time. Kadesh means holiness. Jesus is our holy savior. Jesus is our ultimate city of refuge. He is our holy savior. That's what Kadesh means. It means holiness. And so Jesus is the one who is holy and he makes us holy. When we, when we find our refuge in Christ, amen, we are made holy regardless of the sins in our past. Um, Shechem and Ephraim, Shechem means shoulder or strength. Jesus is the one who sustains us. Our guilt could weigh us down, but Jesus lifts our burdens. And uh, the text, the Shechem word could also mean shoulder. The Bible talks about this in Isaiah 9, 6, that uh, the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, the justice system shall be upon his shoulder. So he is the one who protects us with his strength and undergirds us, even though we could be condemned in our sins, we are made righteous and holy in his grace. Hebron means fellowship. And this is a beautiful picture of what God does for us when we come to Christ. The First uh, John 1, 7 says that if we, um, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Beautiful picture of God's grace for us in Christ Jesus. And then let's go on to number four. Bezer means stronghold. Jesus is our defense, our fortification, if you will. Uh, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light, my salvation. The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? A beautiful picture of God's grace to protect us from the wrath of sin that would that would otherwise uh, rip apart our souls and destroy us. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it, and he is safe. And then Ramoth means exalted. Jesus is the exalted high priest who also bends down to exalt us. James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and in due season he will exalt you. And then Golan means separated. And what does that refer to? But that we are separated from the world. We are not just separated from the world, but we are separated to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. My friends, that is a beautiful picture of our salvation. The cities of refuge are all over the Old Testament. Why? Because they are pointing to our ultimate and final refuge in the person of Jesus Christ. If you are guilty, if you feel shame, if you feel accused and you feel that you have no standing before God, come to Christ Jesus and he will cover you with his feathers and under his refuge, the psalmist says, you will find peace and rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, Jesus said, and all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool how right there in the establishment of the land, God is sowing the seeds of refuge. And by the way, six cities of refuge, the number of man is six in the Bible. So these are places of refuge for any man or woman who need him. And that is everyone. Everyone needs it. Amen. That's the picture of the cities of refuge, but it also points to due process in our current criminal justice system. Now, another uh, amendment we talked about, but uh, which it was under, is underlined by the Torah, is cruel and unusual punishment. Well, there are laws in Torah concerning proportional punishment. Exodus chapter 21, verse 23, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. 
Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, 20. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. A lot of people say, and they quote that line, I think it's from Gandhi, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Okay, it is not about plucking people's eyes out. It's about proportionality for punishment of crimes. You, you cannot live in a society where crime goes unpunished. Understand that the rules of the heavenly kingdom are spiritual, but the rules of the natural world are physical. And so you cannot allow murderers to go free simply because, oh, grace, oh, grace and forgiveness, and we don't want to pluck eyes out. No, no, no. Punishment must fit the crime. Otherwise, these people will, will, will repeat crimes and cause irreparable harm to untold numbers of people. And yes, if you are sitting in a prison, you can absolutely be free and exonerated and, and, and guiltless before the throne of God. But it does not mean that you do not pay for your crimes committed against humanity in the kingdoms of this world. Uh, so there is that. The, concerning, uh, the laws concerning proportional punishment, let's continue. Laws concerning uh, protecting the vulnerable. And this would be, you know, unreasonable search and seizure laws on our books that, that protect you from the government just enforcing its, its way with you and, and you are a victim. Well, Exodus chapter 22, 22 says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. The idea here that underlies our criminal justice system is that the community shares responsibility to those who are innocent and vulnerable. By the way, the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Hosea, they all document incredible amounts of harm done to the vulnerable when a society is obsessed and taken captive with sexual morality and greed. It's kind of interesting. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that. Uh, you, you have this, um, this ex exploitation of the young, the dominance of the, 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 the women, the, um, the raping of the innocents. Why? Because greed and sexual indulgence have become commonplace within the hearts of God's people and the outflow of those two uh, idols in the heart of man uh, rob the innocent and uh, harm the vulnerable and God's heart goes out toward them. Uh, there is one last uh, law that we want to look at here tonight. Unsolved murder and death, God does deal with that in Deuteronomy 21. Another picture of the gospel here. He says, if in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it's not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of that city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Now you say, wow, this is weird. This is a weird law. Well, it's very simple. Again, the value of human life. You, you, um, what the Mishnah says, he who takes one life has, has basically... Yeah, obliterated the whole world because the potential of that life has been removed from society. You must see your neighbor, not as competition. No, as contribution. You must see other people for their wonderful potential to bring into society. That is the value of the human person. And when it is lost and you don't have someone that you can um, hold accountable to it, you will take a a beast of burden that has never contributed, has not plowed yet, and you will take its life so that you can see what you have lost in seeing this land defiled uh, by, by bloodshed. And that law goes on.
the priests, the sons of Levi, this is verse five, shall come forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless him, bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley and they shall testify our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So again and again and again, you see innocent blood is a big deal with God. Innocent blood is a big deal. In fact, Proverbs chapter six states that there are six things that God hates and the, and the shedding of innocent blood is one of those things. Our land right now is under a curse, I believe, because of the untold numbers of innocent people's lives taken in the womb. Speaking of which, does the Torah have anything to say about abortion? Yes, it does. Absolutely, it does. And anybody who tells you that historic Christianity had no problem with abortion is lying to you. We have scads of evidence from the church fathers to the Nicene fathers down through the ages that the unborn life was sacred, was sanctified and dignified with the image of God from conception. It finds its roots in Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. It says this, when men strive together, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. Then the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall oppose on him. And he, he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, listen to this, the harm of what? The child, the child that has come out of the woman. He shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, that baby in their mother's womb is laden with the imago Dei, and is worthy of rights protection and justice, just as the already born receives. Ultimately, summing up, God's law is intended to protect, to dignify, and exalt the value of human life. A culture of death brings the wrath of God upon itself. Isaiah said it like this in Isaiah 24, verse 4, the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languished. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. What a picture of our present condition as a society. The obliteration of the, of the man, the feminization of the man. Where are strong men in our world today? Well, What's happened is we have robbed the innocent of their rights. We have obliterated the Imago Dei and the unborn. We have protected the lives of blatant murderers and God's curse, unfortunately, has come upon us. Well, what's the root of all of it? We gotta go to the New Testament because we can't just talk about the Torah without interpreting it through the lens of the New Testament. Our fathers in the faith, James, the Lord's brother, says this, it starts with anger. He says in James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about anger. And in God's eyes, it's filthiness and it's rampant wickedness. And he says, here's how you get rid of that anger. You receive the word implanted, which saves your soul. Ultimately, anger in the heart of a person is... Indicative, indicative of the fact that they have not come to Christ. And if you are a Christian and you're struggling with anger, you must confess 
You must renounce. You must turn away. You must receive God's word that brings peace into your heart because it starts with anger and then it leads to hatred. 1 John chapter 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has life abiding in him. And it ends in death. Jesus said these very famous words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said that of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But he says, I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now he's not talking about Jess. He's not talking about, you know, uh, just basically any, you know, vain word that comes out of your mouth. What he's talking about is that, that animosity and hatred that curses your fellow man. It's, it's a symbol of spiritual death within you. You are under judgment. That hatred and vile speech comes from a heart that is trapped in sin. You must repent, renounce, and walk away from it because that person is made in the image of Christ. And our ultimate hope, ultimate hope only is in Christ Jesus, where he commends us in the Sermon on the Mount, those same, that same passage. He says, look, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. So notice here, the accuser is the one that you have hurt. You cannot worship God if you have hurt your fellow man. You've got to make amends. And, and it's, a, it's pointing to the gospel because here's what we see in the gospel. In the gospel, we worship God because he has made amends with us. We were enemies, Romans 5.10, with God. And he, has, he died for his enemies. He, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He, he shed his blood for us so that we might have peace with God and peace with our fellow man. And so now having peace with God, we must be peacemakers with our fellow man and worship him in spirit and truth, knowing that we have uh, atoned for our sins and made right our sins against our fellow man. There is only one way out of this. The, the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, regenerating us and making us sons and daughters of the living God at peace with God and at peace with each other so that we stop hurting each other and we lift each other up and bless each other in Christ Jesus. This is what the world needs now more than ever before. And it is my prayer for you that you find it. At the end, God wants us to make peace. The hardest part is letting it go. If you are the one who has been harmed, if you are the one who has been wounded, your job as a Christian is in many respects. Now, I'm not, again, talking about criminal proceedings and legal consequences. I am talking about your spiritual condition. Christ calls us to release forgiveness. What does he say in that same text in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him to the other also. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, understand that God will avenge that you, being a peacemaker, need to, in many cases, let things go, not harbor grudges. There are a lot of people, a lot of professing Christians, they hold on to everything anyone has ever done to them. 
Oh, and especially when it's a Christian or a church. Oh, I will never go to church because that church did that. Or I'll never go to church because that pastor did that. Or those people didn't accept me. Or I wasn't welcome to the community. And so I have a grudge. I have a reason. I have an excuse to forever hold God accountable for how his people have acted. No, you don't. Because you have acted as just as bad and you may not even know it. You need to be a person who releases forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus shares the story of the man who was accused of owing the king 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was more money than the Roman government had at the time. The king looked with pity as he begged for his life and said, okay, you're forgiven. That man goes out right away and puts a man in jail who owed him 50 bucks. His word comes back to the king. He says, I forgave you your great debt. Shouldn't you have done the same for your brother? Now you're going to pay every last penny that you owe me. And he throws him into debtor's prison. And Jesus says, so will my heavenly father treat any one of you who does not forgive your brother from his heart. What is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about you being a schmuck? Is he talking about you just being a doormat? No. He's talking about vengeance stopping with you. He's talking about eye for an eye, blood guilt stopping with you, restraining, not just restraining evil, sorry, not just restraining evil, but releasing goodness, releasing grace, releasing forgiveness to people who have harmed you. Where will it stop if it does not stop with the church? Where will it end if it does not end with the people of God? If we are going to be peacemakers, then we cannot be grudge keepers. We've got to be people who know how to forgive as the Lord God forgave us. What can we conclude from this passage? Number one, God's image is on the human person. Human life is sacred, number two. Punishment must suit the crime. This is all throughout the scriptures. Reconciliation is the ultimate aim of the gospel. And peace in our hearts should produce peace in our communities. That is what Torah brings to us today. I hope you've enjoyed the content. If you want to support the Bible study as old-fashioned as we used to in times past, the Cash App or timhatchlive.com support. But I'd much rather you be part of the Deependables, the membership plan. This is helping us do many things as we have got a lot of tongs in the fire, if you will, going next week, not next week, but the week after to the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. When you join up and sign up, you are going to help us support Project Rescue and the American Bible Society. And the other way you can support this content is by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the channel. It has been an absolute pleasure to be with you guys. My prayer is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will abide in your hearts in such a way that you can be a free releaser of grace to others because the world needs more Jesus. Take care. Take care.